ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday, December the 20th. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Residents of Cyclone and flood hit far north Queensland are grappling with the scale of the destruction caused across the region. There's significant damage to homes, roads and other infrastructure and as Nick Grimm reports, the tourism and agriculture industries could take months to recover. After copping around a year's worth of rain within four days at his papaya farm just outside of Mariba, Jared Kath is still counting the losses. For a start, he'll have to dump around 100 tonnes of fruit that's fallen on the ground. The next thing is the fruit that we harvest now, the quality is significantly poorer. So there's fruit there that's effectively sucked up a lot of water and it's like a big balloon of water. You know, the, the shelf life of the fruit is pretty ordinary. Because of the water, it has a shorter shelf life, so there'll be significant fruit losses just on fruit that's pick-packed and ends up at market, but then, you know, has to get thrown or sorted out down that end based on quality problems. And that's the fruit that does get to market. Two out of three bridges that crossed Jared Cat's land were wrecked by the deluge, and even the produce that gets out the farm gate still has to somehow negotiate the region's damaged road network by truck. This is the thing that people don't realise. When you've got main arterials blocked, it's significantly further for them, and direct cost to any customer is about $30 a pallet more. So that's going from $200 a pallet to Brisbane to 230 which is a significant increase as well. So all these increases all come at a cost, and ultimately the grower has to bear that. And uh, it's going to be likely to be some months, uh, some quite a number of months we expect for rectification. Gary Mann is the CEO of the Queensland Trucking Association. He's warning consumers to expect significant disruptions to supplies of fresh produce. The biggest issue by far is access onto the tablelands and particularly that powerhouse of economic production up there in uh, farming um, produce and particularly, um, you know, tomatoes, avos, uh, mangoes and the like. You're talking about access almost being cut off. So it will get to market, but it's just going to be a lot more difficult and a lot costlier to get it there. It will be a lot costlier and um, and that's going to go on for some time. Uh, we're uh, preparing for some months of um, that sort of alternate access having to be utilised. Uh, when you consider the economic value of uh, farming production coming off the Atherton Tablelands, we would expect far greater priority being given to all-weather freight route and uh, we'd like to see uh, the investment in those roads uh, ramped up so that the regions get their fair share. The tourism industry is also worried about damage to the region's infrastructure. Uh, And there's a very large rock on the road between Cairns and Port Douglas, which we need to understand how we firstly get around and then secondly how we remove that. So it's going to be an interesting couple of days ahead. Mark Olson is CEO of Tourism Tropical North Queensland. What we have seen through December and January already is about $125 million worth of cancellations and lost bookings. So the industry is hurting at the moment. I can say that quite honestly. There's a lot of uncertainty. So many of the industry are a little bit nervous and they're really hoping that visitors who have got bookings already will hold on to them for at least a couple of days while we can assess the situation and then really provide that great communication that our industry is famous for. That's Mark Olson, the Chief Executive of Tourism Tropical 
North Queensland. Nick Grimm reporting there. Brendan Moon is the head of the National Emergency Management Agency, joins us now from Cairns. Good morning. What's the priority this morning? Uh, good morning, Sabra. So uh, this morning um, very much is around the reinstatement of services to North Queensland. Obviously, power, water, communications have um, been hit um, by this particular event. Uh, there are many serv uh, service providers out there on the ground now restoring services um, as, as those areas become available. And where they cannot be accessed by road, there are fly-in services available restoring power as people can get access to those remote areas. Also, resupply is a priority for some of the isolated communities, especially in relation to food, water and fuel. And there are plans in place to ensure that, that, that adequate supplies are available to those communities, Sabra. You've headed the Queensland Reconstruction Authority in the past. What is the scale of this recovery looking like so far? How many homes have been damaged? How many uninhabitable? So this is a major event, uh, Sabra. I think what we've seen is uh, all records broken up here in North Queensland. We've seen massive impacts to road networks, to communities, and at this point in time, damage assessment teams are only now being able to access many of those communities. So I think over the coming days, we will get more visibility of the impacts there. We're certainly aware of damage uh, to many houses in the northern beaches of Cairns, certainly in the Douglas area as well on the Daintree side, Wonga, um, and we definitely know there are significant impacts into Woodjul Woodjul as well. We'll get numbers, uh, we'll crystallise those numbers in the coming days, but support services are on the ground, in the air, and also financial relief, importantly, is available to those communities. Just on Woodjul Woodjul, Queensland has asked for more Commonwealth support there. Can you tell us why and what's left of that settlement? So um, at, at this point in time, uh, evacuations took place yesterday and will continue into today because of the massive rain event that actually flooded Woodjul Woodjul and caused significant impacts from debris, also from mud into that township. It will be a number of days before we can get access and truly understand the size and the scale of that. But there is air support available for that community now to get them out of Woodjul Woodjul and the focus is very much on reopening access to Woodjul Woodjul so that we can get those essential services in there to start the clean-up. Uh, you've hinted at this already, the infrastructure damage. How long is it going to do to assess all of that? And is there any early indication of the cost of repairing and replacing all of that? This will be a significant event, Sabra. Um, we have transport and main roads, technical crews out there looking at the critical freight routes and the lifeline to the north here to determine what are the priorities for clearing. The damage is so extensive, this will take a couple of years to actually fully repair the network. But what we have developed over many years here in Queensland is the ability to get those routes open very, very quickly. Those emergency works will be completed very quickly. But right now, those teams are out there looking at those most essential freight routes and also access routes for those remote communities so that we can get them open as quickly as possible. Tell us about the extra emergency services personnel that are coming in. I think you've got some coming in from Townsville today. Are you getting enough help and volunteers, the Mud Army, are they welcome? 
Oh, look, look one of the one of the um, uh, one of the uh, real the highlights of this event so far is what we've seen at a community level. We've seen neighbours helping neighbours, and even yesterday in Holloway's Beach, we were with we were with one householder who had taken in his neighbours, who some he didn't even know that had been flooded by this event, all the way through to the ADF providing rescue services out of HMAS Gans here. So all levels of government are contributing to this. Local government offices are now coming from other parts of Queensland to relieve tired workers from the local count the nine local councils that have been impacted by this event so this is a massive response and recovery effort and it is being resourced from not only across Queensland but also from across Australia logistically you were just saying that this could take years uh, do, do you sort of scratch your head and think how on earth are we going to do this especially given at the moment we've got low unemployment it's going to be a real struggle to get all the essential people there to help North Queensland rebuild? I, th I think what we've learned since the bushfires in Australia and certainly Queensland over the last decade is that we will be impacted by many events. They've developed the capabilities, the arrangements to actually deal with these events. It will be a process where we prioritise the most, the most critical pieces of infrastructure to rebuild quickly, and we will get there. Um, I think everyone should be uh, confident there will be a plan in place. It will be resourced, and there's a lot of capability to deliver on it, Sabra. There's been some criticism about the Weather Bureau that it forecasts the cyclone accurately, but not the record rainfall that came afterwards. Does there need to be a review of that, given that the science is telling us extreme events will become more frequent with climate change? I, I am aware of that commentary. Um, I also am aware of the bomb messages that there would be locally intense and life-threatening flash flooding associated with this particular event. And they work very, very closely with the emergency management uh, services to ensure people have the most up-to-date um, information. But Yes, you are correct. In some of these dynamic, severe events, we certainly do need to look at our technology available and also our warning systems. Importantly, also, we, we need to look at how do our community react to those messages? And I think, I think over the coming years, we will certainly be looking at how do we better get, get better information to inform not only how we understand what events are coming, but what action needs to be taken. Brendan Moon, thanks for joining AM this morning. Thank you, Sabra. And Brendan Moon is the head of the National Emergency Management Agency. There's uncertainty over who will take the top job in the Northern Territory Labor government following the resignation of Chief Minister Natasha Files. She's quit after a series of integrity scandals capped by the revelation that she'd failed to declare she had shares in a company that owns a manganese mine in the Territory. Reporter Jane Barden is in Darwin. Jane, does the resignation of Natasha Files bring an end to the integrity questions around the Northern Territory government? It doesn't bring an end to them because she is remaining on the backbench of government and a Labour MP turned rebel independent Mark Turner has referred some of the share matters and also political lobbying matters that Natasha Files is facing to the Northern Territory's ICAC. These matters are that Natasha Files held shares of Woodside, which was one of the proponents for the controversial Middle Arm project, which is a big gas export hub, and that she also had a political advisor, Jared Richards, who was also a lobbyist for one of the big gas companies wanting to have gas projects in the Beetaloo Basin. There's also another question hanging over her, which is that she had shares of a major mine, South 32 on Groot Island, 
which has put dust all over the Indigenous communities beside it. And as Health Minister, she refused to investigate any health concerns about that dust. So the ICAC Commissioner, Michael Riches, has now said that he is going to be investigating matters that have been referred to him. But he's also put out a missive warning all the members of the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly that they need to report any matters that could be a potential conflict of interest to him. And he says in his statement today, I think such proactive disclosure would be wise, notwithstanding that these disclosures may have been made in other forums. So where does this row leave controversial mining projects, given the mining minister, Nicole Madison, has put up her hand to take on the top job? Well, we have a situation now that the projects that are the subject of these questions and investigations, the middle arm, it's being probed further by a Senate inquiry and the NT government is still asking the federal government for another $2 billion for that project. There's questions over this dusty Gemco mine on Groot Island. Will the Territory government investigate health concerns there? And in the Beetaloo Basin, where the NT government is really desperate to have a big gas fracking industry, there haven't yet been final approvals for that project. And there are several legal challenges already underway from green groups there. So we have a situation where the Territory Government is really keen to get these developments up and to protect the existing mines and projects that the Territory already has because it needs that revenue to underpin its budget. And yet there's lots of questions hanging over the integrity of these projects and their future financial viability. Jane Biden reporting there. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is again throwing his support behind calls for a sustainable ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas conflict. In a major foreign policy speech last night, he's defended Labor's position on the conflict, saying Israel has the right to defend itself and he's calling on Hamas to immediately and unconditionally release all Israeli hostages. Political reporter Chantel Al-Khoury has more. As Prime Minister Anthony Albanese prepared a speech in Sydney last night... Hundreds of pro-Palestinian protesters gathered outside. I think Albo needs to grow a backbone and I guess we're here to really tell Albo that we're really disappointed and things need to change. There are almost 20,000 people who are killed. There are thousands of people, including children, under the rubble. There are hospitals, schools bombed out of existence. And our government has not stood firmly enough. In fact, it hasn't stood at all. In his address to the Lowy Institute, the Prime Minister spruiked Labor's foreign policy decision-making. What Australia says and does on the world stage matters. And he focused a large part of his speech on the Israel-Hamas conflict, repeating the government's support for a pause in hostilities and urgent international efforts towards a sustainable ceasefire. Australia recognises that Israel has the right to defend itself. And the way it does so matters, which is why we have called on Israel to respect international humanitarian law. This means civilians and civilian infrastructure must be protected and humanitarian aid must be allowed to reach those in desperate need. Saying he mourns every innocent life in the conflict, Israeli and Palestinian, the Prime Minister added... We'll continue to make it clear there is no place for prejudice or hatred, anti-Semitism or Islamophobia here in our society. And despite the Israeli government's rejection of a two-state solution, he's reiterated it's the Labor Party's ultimate goal. None of us should abandon hope in the ultimate goal, a two-state solution with Israelis and Palestinians living securely and prosperously 
within internationally recognised borders. And while Australia's trade disputes with China have eased since Labor's election and his visit to Beijing last month, Anthony Albanese offered this observation about our biggest trading partner. We're clear-eyed about the situation. We remain two nations with very different values and political systems. Meanwhile, as the federal government considers a US request to send military resources for a multinational operation to help safeguard commercial trading routes in the Red Sea being targeted by Houthi rebels, Anthony Albanese made it clear Australia's priority is closer to home. That anchoring of Australian strategic policy in our region has been a core tenet of Labor, defence and foreign policy. And he told the gathering Asia is where Australia's economic destiny lies. Chantelle Alcouri with that report. The Sydney woman with disabilities is taking Qantas to the federal court, claiming the airlines discriminated against her for not allowing her service animal to fly. Legal advocates say the rules the airlines are relying on to determine the dogs not allowed on board are arbitrary and unfair. More now from National Disability Affairs reporter Naz Campanella. Rachel Fullerton's world changed forever when her assistance dog Strike came into her life. He's given me like the independence that I had never had before. So I had always had to have a person like come with me, particularly going new places and if I was going away from home for too long. The Sydney woman lives with disabilities. She got Strike almost three years ago and the pair travel everywhere together, including on flights. One of his big tasks is he alerts to medical issues uh, before they're detectable. So it just gives me a chance to be able to address them before they become an issue. Um, but he also does a lot of other things like um, just even just helping with anxiety. Strike is approved to travel on public transport in New South Wales, as well as on airlines like Rex and Virgin. But Rachel Fullerton was shocked when Qantas refused to let him fly. After taking her discrimination complaint to the Human Rights Commission where mediation wasn't successful, she has now gone to the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. The case has been lodged in the federal court. The centre's lawyer is Sheethal Balakrishnan. Disability discrimination laws are clear. A business can't discriminate against a person who uses an assistance dog, particularly where that assistance dog is recognised under the national law. And we say strike is recognised under the national law. Under Qantas policy, assistance animals must be trained according to standards set by a particular Queensland law or assistance dogs international. Strike is recognised as an assistance animal by various bodies, including the National Disability Insurance Scheme, but he hasn't been recognised by the Queensland law or the international organisation within the Qantas guidelines. Rachel Fullerton looked into having Strike accredited by an approved organisation associated with the international body, but it didn't have any in New South Wales willing to certify a dog it hadn't raised, placed or trained itself. Lawyer Sheethal Balakrishnan says Qantas's requirements for assistance animals are narrower than what's needed under the Disability Discrimination Act, which she says strike does meet. Qantas is making its own rules, which we say is arbitrary and unfair and inconsistent with what is required and allowed under the national laws. In a statement, Qantas says it recognises the role assistance dogs plays for their owners and it carries many on board each year. It says the airline consults with customers with disability who want to travel with an assistance dog in advance to obtain all relevant information to ensure it is safe to carry the dog in the aircraft cabin. Naz Campanella reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.